here we are in the third week of Lent, journeying together uh, towards uh, Holy Week and Easter Sunday. And as you know, the, the church has been, uh, has taken up a, a series for Lent about what really matters and trying to discern what really matters. And uh, I had the opportunity on Thursday to have um, breakfast with Mark, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, so I, at one point, I looked up from uh, my bowl of oatmeal and uh, said, hey, Mark, um, what are you going to preach on this Sunday? Can, can I get a, like a hint? And he said, well, the truth of the matter is, um, I'm out of town this Sunday, so I'm not preaching at all. <laughs> I'm like, really? You've really given me no help at all the last two weeks, and I was thinking, okay, now I've got you, and I'm going to get a little help, and you're leaving town? Um, but we did talk a little bit about uh, the chapter in Bickerton's book that uh, the rest of the staff is preaching from this week, and he went back, he said, said, I remember reading that chapter and thinking, now, if I was preaching, I think I'd preach about this. But I don't remember what that was. Oh. <laughs> I said, thanks, Mark. Um, but he was good enough to go back to his office and pull the book off, and he did send me uh, a one-sentence text. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I had more than enough help uh, from Mark uh, about what he was going to do. <laughs> So, the issue before us this week is, how do, you de- how do you decide what really matters? Um, I mean, it's one thing to say, um, I mean, one way I, I was thinking this week, I mean, if we were talking about Lent and we were trying to think about how to frame this series Lentenly, I mean, one way of thinking about it is, one of, the, one of the things that we might find ourselves reflecting on during Lent, as you know, Lent's a period of time of reflection to discern uh, where, where are the places in, in my life, where are the places in our life together that we are not yet what God would have us be, right? Uh, not, not to just engage in that uh, so that we can feel bad, you know, get, get a little dose of feeling bad and go on with our lives. But as a, as a time of examination, in order to open ourselves up to the work of the Spirit more fully. I mean, that's the, the idea of, of Lent. It's not, um, it's, a, it's a period of repentance, right? And so one of the things, one way of thinking about that would be to say, well, one of the things that the church from the very beginning has struggled with and we continue to struggle with uh, 2,000 years later, um, is, is the, the unity of the church on all kinds of levels, right? I mean, uh, the unity of a congregation. In, in what sense are we united? In what sense do we have things in common that hold us together? And are we aware of what those things are? Um, but then it extends beyond that, right? Um, Muncie, as United Methodist Church, there's not only questions of unity here in this congregation, there's questions of unity 
within the United Methodist Church, right? What holds us together? And as we, we all know, there are serious issues there about the United Methodist Church and can the United Methodist Church stay united? Um, and then beyond that, right, there's the question of a broader unity beyond the United Methodist Church. You know, what is it, um, I mean, Jesus prays, as you know, in, in John, uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus' final prayer before this long priestly prayer is, is about us being one. Jesus is praying for us to be one. And so this has been God's desire from the beginning, from the birth of the church, that we somehow be one. And so, but we know there are divisions at the congregational level. There are, there are divisions at uh, the denominational level. There are divisions at the larger uh, level, the universal church. And so there's plenty for us to reflect on. And certainly the reason for asking ourselves during these weeks of Lent, what really matters is to do that in a way of trying to sift through uh, what are the things that divide us and how many of those things that divide us at any of those level are things that really matter. Right? And so today we're trying to sort through, sift through if you will, um, how, do, how do we discern the things that matter and the things that we might still care about, that might still be at some level to at any number of levels important, but aren't essential. Right? How, do, how do we sort through the things that matter that are ultimately essential to our identity uh, as the body of Christ? And so that's, uh, so that's the question for today. How, how do you decide? How does anyone decide? How, does, how do we decide as a people? How does anyone decide what really matters? And so the passage of scripture that was uh, selected by the staff to look at today is in the first chapter of Philippians. So if you have your, your scriptures and you want to turn to the first chapter of Philippians, uh, we're going to look at about uh, eight or nine verses there, and then we may go other places too. Uh, I always hold out that prerogative. <laughs> you recall that uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians uh, Philippi is a, a town sort of in what we think of as uh, northern Greece. Um, so it's, it's one of the early places that the, the gospel went um, in, in sort of what we would call Europe, okay, out, of, out away from Jerusalem. Um, and Paul's writing uh, to this congregation uh, from prison, uh, probably in Ephesus. Um, so I don't know how many letters you've written from prison. Um, just one? <laughs> Judy says, just one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I really wasn't taking a poll on that. <laughs> but if you want to talk about that, we can. Uh, so Paul wrote a number of letters from prison, different prisons different imprisonments, uh, and this is one of them. It's always helpful to remember that, um, not least of which 
Um, some people call this letter the epistle of joy. And again, I don't, we'll talk a little bit about joy uh, a little more next week. But I don't know if you imagine being imprisoned if you were writing to people that you cared deeply about. If uh, people would say, you really know that, that letter from Judy, it just really oozed joy. <laughs> um, now maybe, maybe that would be the case, but it's, uh, it's, it's a striking epistle, it's a striking letter. And so, let's, let's just start at the beginning. Um, it's always a good place to start. We'll just read the first, maybe 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Let's just pause there for a second. So he thanks them every time I remember you. That's self pretty extraordinary. Um, thinking about Paul remembering his brothers and sisters in Philippi, every time he thinks of them, he gives thanks. Um, I don't know how many people you have in your life that you could say that honestly about. Uh, every time you think of them, you just, just find yourself just wrapped in gratitude. Uh, it's a pretty extraordinary way of thinking about your relationships. Um, and constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for you. And then he has this extraordinary statement that he is fully confident that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing to say. Isn't it? I mean, not just to say it, but to say it with the kind of confidence that Paul does. Um, that the work that God's begun in you, the work that God's begun in me, um, we didn't need Lent to remind us that we're, we haven't yet arrived, right? That we're still not yet what God wants us to be, that we're, we're a work in progress, um, which is one of the things we need to be reminded of, right? Um, it's a lot easier, uh, I'd, I'd like to think it's easier for you to look over my 
weaknesses and failures if you don't simply identify me with my weaknesses and my failures, which is easy to do, right? It's easy for me to look at people who I uh, find myself estranged from. And when I think of them and I see them, I just think of their weaknesses and failures or the ways that they, I think they betrayed me or the way I think they're wrong. It's easy to do that. Um, but it's interesting, how does it change if I, if I think of someone as a work in progress, which is what we all are. Um, but Paul doesn't just leave it. Paul doesn't just say, you know, greetings to all my friends in Philippi, a whole group of people who are a work in progress. Right, sometimes we say that sort of as a term of endearment. Like, oh yeah, well they're a work in progress. Uh, right? Uh, or they're just a piece of work. <laughs> um, but Paul doesn't just leave it there, does he? Not only are they a work in progress, just as we are, but Paul is fully confident that the work that God began in them, God will bring to completion. How many times do I think that when I look at people who I'm not sure what to do with? Right, they probably don't know what to do with me either. Um, last week we talked a little bit about trying to be reminded of our belovedness. And I told you the story of this friend of mine who's getting a tattoo on her wrist that says, Beloved. And I asked the question at the end last week about what would it be like when I see my brothers and sisters and when I see actually people who may not be my brothers and sisters in Christ but still are, share the same humanity, the same image of God uh, that I do. What if I imagined they too on their wrist had tattooed the word beloved? because they are. Um, I'm wondering today, what would happen if I, if I saw other people, uh, not just as a work in progress, although they are, just as I am, but also that they were someone in whom God was going to bring to completion the work that God had begun. How would that change the way that I see other people? I have a sense it might, right? If I were to see other people not simply as what I see them now to be, but what if I were willing to have eyes to see what God is yet making them to be? How would that change my interactions with them? How would that change our discussions, our discernment together about what matters uh, if we found ourselves disagreeing about maybe what matters? So Paul is convinced, is confident that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes on in verse 8. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you discern what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Notice he's praying that they be able to discern what is best. But notice where, where he thinks that's coming from, this capacity to discern what is best. That your love may overflow more with knowledge and insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. It's flowing out of this, this love. Right? It's flowing out of this love. It's not just a matter of just being really, really smart. Right? It's not discerning what matters. is isn't just simply a matter of being even wise and insightful. And he thinks those that wisdom and insight actually will be an out will be an come out of the overflow of their love. Which again I think is not the way we typically think of it. And I think that's a, a striking image there. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. So how do we decide what really matters? If, this, if we are aware of our belovedness and that belovedness makes possible our capacity to love one another, in, we love because God first loved us, right? We know this. So our love for one another is itself an outpouring, a result of our belovedness. It's, we can only deeply love one another to the extent that we live into our own belovedness. So how do we decide what really matters? One of the challenges, of course, is trying to, maybe the central challenge, is trying to discern what do we do with our differences. Um, I think all of us know that we're different, right? This is not news to you. Um, the question is, and the challenge, I mean, which is at the heart of trying to decide what matters. And I say trying to decide what matters. I'm talking about how do we decide what matters. I don't just mean like how do I decide what matters. Because um, we, we can all come up with all kinds of ways. Um, we, we can all have our favorite ways for deciding what matters. <laughs> but how, 
how would we decide what matters together? That's the tricky part. And, and what do we do when there are differences about that? And, and how do we remain in, in harmony about that? Um, now, we've talked about this before, but just to remind ourselves, I mean, harmony is by its very nature, as a musical notation, musical concept, is unity with difference. Right? I mean, if you just... Unity does not mean uniformity. It does not mean conformity to just one thing. It means there can be differences. Differences, when they come together in the right ways, can be beautiful. Hence, harmony. I was noticing when we were singing, uh, some of you were singing harmony. And I, I had no uh, desire, I, I had no, uh, nothing in me sort of felt like I need to turn around and, you, and tell you, could you please stay on the same note? <laughs> now, there are some songs that when you get to it, it'll say unison. Right? Where we drop out of harmony and we all sing the same note. And there, there's theological reasons for that. Um, but harmony, what makes harmony beautiful is that they're different notes. Now there's also discord. Right? Um, which is when you have different notes playing together that don't feel like they go together. That's a different thing. That's, that's difference without unity. Okay? So you can have unity with difference. That's harmony. And you can also have uh, different, you can have difference without unity and that's discord. And the and question is, how do we sort through that? Because uh, that itself is partly about sorting through what matters. And part of it is, how do we think about difference? And there's kind of a scale, um, a kind of scale the way that we think of differences. We bump into differences every day, all day long, and we negotiate those differences in all different kinds of ways uh, some of those differences are just sort of curiosities, and we make nothing of them. And to be clear here, um, we can't separate the way that we think about difference from the way our, or the wider culture has taught us to think about difference. Right? We didn't come out of the womb with certain uh, assumptions about difference. We have been deeply, deeply shaped about difference. So to just take so one end of the scale is sort of completely harmless, noticeable, but nothing really hinges on it kind of difference. So for whatever reason, I'm not one of those people um, who have been over the course of my life particularly attentive to eye color. Some people can, they can tell you every person they know and they can tell you what color their eyes are. 
It's just something that people notice. Um, I actually have never been that kind of person. I don't know why. I mean, I'm not even sure I could tell you the color of eyes of my children. <laughs> that's, that's really embarrassing to admit, but I think it's probably true. <laughs> it's, not, it's just not something that registers with me. It's not, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying i just not one of those things that I notice. But I do know people have different eye colors. And even people who are attentive to eye color at the end of the day don't make too much of it. Right? I mean, most of us don't think that someone's eye color is the key to their moral character, for example. Right? Most of you haven't been having a conversation at dinner sometime and you said, well, you can't really expect much different from them. I mean, after all, they're one of those hazel-eyed people. <laughs> I mean, because nothing in our culture has ever taught us to think that somehow eye color somehow tells you something interesting about who somebody is. So yeah, we notice that's a difference, but it's not a difference that we hang anything on. Okay? Um, so that's one kind of difference. That's sort of the far one end of the scale, where there are all kinds of differences that we notice, but we don't make much of them. Um, they're not threatening, they're not relevatory, they're just different, okay? No big deal. On the other end of the scale are differences that are incredibly threatening for whatever reason. Um, they are differences where they, they tell you a lot about who the people are, and they're, they're not just wrong, they're, they're demonic, okay? They are evil and demonic and need to be destroyed. Okay, that, that's a very different kind of difference. And there's probably, you know, infinite number of gradations in between there. I mean, but that's, I mean, that's the two ends of the spectrum. And we could think of lots of other examples of difference in between. I mean, go back to the, go back to the eye color thing. Um, as we know, as I said, most of us don't hinge, uh, don't hang much on eye color difference, mainly because we grew up in a culture that didn't. Although, it doesn't take a great feat of the imagination to imagine a culture in which we could have grown up in which actually it did matter. Right? I mean, I can. I mean, it would be a weird culture, right? But I can imagine a culture in which people separated themselves by eye color. Right? Um, Sunday morning, you looked around, and you thought, that's kind of weird. I mean, everybody in that church, that's, that's the blue-eyed church. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the blondes and blue-haired folks in that church. Right? Or, you know, but once in a while they do have, you know, like a Sunday night service and they get together with the hazel-eyed people <laughs> just to show that they're real Christians, right? And that those eye color differences don't really matter. Um, the brown-eyed people, yeah, I mean, 
They can serve in the melting pot, you know, once a quarter. Um, so we'll, we'll sort of acknowledge their humanity too. Um, maybe we could imagine a world like that. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, you don't even need me to fill in the blanks here, right? I mean, because we live in a world where skin color does matter, apparently. Right? We've been taught that skin color, I mean, we can say it doesn't matter, but it still seems to matter. We still seem to sort ourselves out a lot more based on skin color than we do the pigment of our eyes. So for some reason, you know, we can tell ourselves it doesn't matter, um, but it still looks like it matters. Um, we're still remarkably alike skin color-wise here this morning. I note, um, not because you didn't note it, but just to say it out loud, right? Now again, whether that's a problem or not, that's not the point right now. The point is just stating the fact, right? So apparently that's a different kind of difference that apparently matters a little bit more, or maybe a lot more, than eye color. And for some people, that difference might feel a little more unsettling, a little more confusing, a little more threatening. It could be a whole, roast, a whole host of things, and people deal with that different ways. So, all different kinds of ways of dealing with difference. And we have different ways of dealing with things in the church, not just eye color, skin color, but also certain types of things that we care about. And so, and this is, this goes back early on, right? Paul's trying to talk about this. Jesus is trying to talk about this. This worry about unity. The fact that Jesus prays for our unity seems to suggest that um, he cared about it. The fact that Paul, you know, when he's writing to the Galatians, right, that famous passage in Galatians 3.28 that you're familiar with, right? Um, Paul says, this is, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now Paul knew in his day that, that those were three sort of major divisions, three kinds of ways in which people sorted themselves out. Jew and Gentile. Pretty prominent division was in Paul's world sort of the prominent division. Slave and free pretty prominent division. Male and female, pretty prominent division in Paul's day. And of course, Paul didn't mean that uh, once you became a follower of Jesus, that people stopped being male and female, slave or free, even Jew and Gentile. But that, that somehow those identity markers were no longer now the primary way in which you thought of yourself. And they were more important than that. They were no longer ways to divide. They were no longer matters of division. Right? 
So people were still Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, but those were no longer matters of division, that somehow they had been made one in Christ. So notice that for, for Paul, the first thing to be clear about, one of the fundamental things to be clear about, is God has made us one. Just like last week we were talking about, one of the first things to be clear about is that we are beloved. So the first thing to say about our unity is that God has made us one in Christ. And our unity, our oneness, is like so much in the Christian life, first of all gift and then task. First of all, gift and then task. It's the thing we've talked about so many times in here. Uh, it's that horticultural metaphor that we beat to death when we were talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Right? That the farmer knows that, you know, growing anything, it's first of all, gift. Most of what the farmer needs to make a productive harvest is gift. Life in the seed, sunshine, rain, all the things that you need, nutrients in the earth. But there's still task. There's still something to do. You don't just you know, sit in the barn and read farm magazines. There's still work to do. Same thing here. God has made us one in Christ. Our task is to live into that. Because we are fallen creatures, we're works in progress, and we have to figure out how to, how to become, how to be open to the Spirit and allow God to make us what God has made us. So our, our task is not to try to make ourselves united, it's to try to, how do we live into what God has made us? Which means there are probably obstacles in the way. In Paul's day, it was these divisions between Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free. In our day, it may be those divisions or others. But we have to decide, do those divisions, are those the divisions that make us who we are? Or has God made us something else? And that means we have to decide what's essential to being the body of Christ and what may be non-essential, although it still may be important. And one of the questions we're going to be asking for next week that I want you to be thinking about for this week, um, and we'll talk about this next week, is I mean, one of the questions that uh, Bickerton's book... <coughs> Uh, has us ask is just a kind of thought experiment um, when you're trying to sort through essential and non-essential like what really is essential for us being the body of Christ those would be things to hold on to things that are non-essential but we care about I mean we could hold on to them if we can but if we have to let them go we might be able to let them go even though it might be hard wouldn't necessarily 
enjoy it. It would be painful. Um, but they, at the end of the day, are not essential to being the one body of Christ. And his question is, um, if blank, something that you're trying to decide if is essential or non-essential, if blank went away, could we still be the church? Okay? If blank, if you fill in the blank with something you're trying to sort through, is this essential or non-essential? If blank went away, could we still be the church? So take an easy one. Well, maybe it's not an easy one, but a relevant one. If we didn't have five services on Sunday morning, could we still be the church? I hope the answer is yes. Right? I hope we... Now, that doesn't mean that that wouldn't, that wouldn't be painful. Because we... My guess is here that most of you have a preference, right? Um, I mean, all things being equal. I mean, some of you may not have. I mean, maybe some of you just rotate between all five. It doesn't really matter to you at all, uh, which is fine. But most of you probably have a preference. Um, and if, if it were up to you, you might even like for your preference to remain, right? And you probably would. But if we could agree, right, that if five services at Muncie Church on Sunday morning went away, we could still be the church, that, that wouldn't be an unimportant consensus to arrive at. Because if we didn't start with that question, what we, what we could do is then just, if that issue ever comes up, and it's a good, it's a good likelihood. No one's, I don't have any inside information on this, but I'm just saying it's hard to imagine at some point in Muncie's life that that's not going to come up. If we were to deal with that in the way that American culture has taught us, we would just break into five different interest groups that would all lobby for their own interests. Right? And we would pit it against each other, all trying to argue for saving our preference. It would have nothing to do with being the one body of Christ. Sounds like Congress. <laughs> let the one who has ears to hear, let them hear. No, that's, that's what American politics is, is interest group politics. And this morning we're not arguing about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just not the body of Christ. So if you're not clear about how the politics of the church are different than the politics of the U.S., get clear about that. Because politics just means how do people order their life together? And the church has its own politics. It has its own politics. And it's not just a mere reflection of the politics of the wider order, regardless of what order you find yourself in. Now, sometimes it looks that way, but it ought not be that way. And part of what we're trying to get clear about in this series is, how do we decide what really matters? And how does that shape how we make decisions together? And maybe what we'll start next week is, uh, I want to read you maybe next week, to start with, uh, a little bit out of what I know is 
bedside reading for all of you, and that's the United Methodist Book of Discipline. <laughs> um, I, and um, now Wesley has some interesting things to, to say about this. Um, and I just want to read you one thing that Wesley has to say. We'll come back to this next week. Um, Wesley, had, of course, we have the train. It's like the third train this morning. Yeah. Wesley had a lot to say uh, about this. Um, but he was a fan of a, a kind of uh, slogan that was popular in his day. No one's really, well, there's debate about who first said it. Uh, it's an ancient sense, but as far as actually saying it, uh, I imagine most of you have heard it, right? And it's, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love, depending on how you want to translate that word, right? So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. We'll try to unpack that a little bit next week, but one of the things that Wesley said about that was it was important to understand the limits of human understanding. And this might be the thing that we'll end on today. Is reminded, if we were reminded last week of our belovedness, here we're being reminded of this fact that we're works in progress. Also in terms of our limitations and our understanding. So maybe this is, write this on a note card and put it on your dashboard if you can read and drive at the same time or put it on your breakfast table. To be ignorant of many things and to be mistaken in some is the necessary condition of humanity. Did you get that? To be ignorant of many things. Ignorant meaning just you don't know them, you don't, right? And to be mistaken in some, ignorant of many, mistaken in some, is the necessary condition of humanity. Okay, necessary condition of humanity. This is, this is our lot, okay, is to be ignorant and mistaken. which ought to cultivate a posture of humility, right? Because I don't know about you, but if I were absolutely sure about all the things I was mistaken about, I wouldn't be mistaken about them anymore, <laughs> right? Just like if I knew what all my blind spots were, they wouldn't be blind spots. So it's precisely because I'm mistaken and don't know what they are that 
I should enter into any conversation like this, discernment together about what matters, with some degree of humility. I could be wrong. I am wrong about many things. I just don't know which ones they are. <laughs> but you might. And you might help me if I were open to that. And if we were willing to talk together. And talk together not just to convince each other that I'm right and you're wrong. But that we might discern together what God desires for us in this place at this time. Those are challenging things. And there's, again, there's not, as you've suggested, there's not a lot in American culture that cultivates the kinds of skill and sensibilities for that kind of conversation. So we've got to work at it. Uh, hence what we're trying to do here. Um, but there's reason to hope, as Paul does, with confidence that the work that God began in us God will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we give you thanks that in Christ you have made us one. We confess that most days we don't know how to live that way, and yet we know you desire us to live more and more into the unity that is this beautiful gift that you've entrusted to us. Cultivate within us a desire for that unity, and cultivate our love for one another that it might overflow in wisdom, in insight, that we might be able to discern what is best. We pray this through Christ. Amen.